0: You're listening to Malka Online Radio Podcast.
1: Yes, people, the time of the evening where you all join us on Legal Talk. And Alhamdulillah, this evening on Legal Talk, we have our very own Ashraf Isub, who really keeps this program buoyant and Alhamdulillah current. And uh, the reason being that he's up to speed, it is a voracious reader and uh, someone that always is on the lookout for the betterment of the Ummah. And he's a gentleman that I embrace and celebrate, not as a brother. But as a wonderful human being. Ashraf, uh, you should. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And tell me, how are you doing this fine uh, beautiful evening?
0: Wa as salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm very well, thank you. With the help of Allah, I'm Alhamdulillah, no complaints.
1: Alhamdulillah, Ashraf. And, uh, you know, looking at many things happening uh, this week, and, uh, you know, before you and I get in our topics, uh, all the questions that have come through, What caught your eye, you know, in this uh, topsy-turvy South Africa of ours, Ashraf?
0: Well, I think uh, obviously the one that is now making news, first uh, the small news and then the big news. The small news, it appears that all COVID protocols have been scrapped, including the indoor masks, etc. And then uh, Chief Justice uh, Zondo now handing the last part of the state capture report to the president, if you looked at that file, it looked huge. But the some of the things coming out of there are very very interesting. The allegations that the president himself had lied and misled the commission, which if true would be very very disastrous for him, and uh, that comes hot on the heels of. Uh, uh, farmgate where uh, where they're now saying that it was not sixty two million but it was twelve million, so I guess twelve million is what they can account for properly on the books in respect of sales, which will make the uh, inquiry much more narrower, but it still doesn't get away from the fact that it was not reported to the police uh it was not uh it was handled by the president's own security and then uh, it was not even reported to the neighbors which you would expect would be the first thing to do is to say guys be careful there's a gang operating in our area so there's some open ended questions there that uh, i suppose will will come out in the wash the president says uh, it's now being investigated so Don't ask too many questions. Let's see, so, you know, when you say topsy-turvy world, it certainly is very interesting how things are happening around the world. Uh, Importantly, I think now, today I came across a comment uh, about the Indian legal justice system and how it denies uh, the Muslim minorities of India access to true justice where they're using the entire mechanism of the state, the military, the police, the media, uh, to happily destroy Muslim homes. You know, it, it's now come to that. And, uh, and the legal justification for that is it lacks safety permits or some kind of building permits, which, on the other hand, the the report was 91% of all buildings in India Uh, will suffer the same fate, but they seem to be uh, turning their attention to the minority Muslim population. Uh, It looks like beatings are increasing, Uh, the oppression generally, uh, the non-access to court, the slow pace of justice concerning. And then obviously now the Arab response to the Indian minister making disparaging comments of the Prophet and, and their reaction to it. But it looks like the reaction is more uh, directed towards financial consequences. So let's wait and see what happens there. Um, interestingly, you know, when you say it matters from around the world, it's very fascinating to see this new pods that they're going to be establishing in uh, for the Hajj. Um, you know, before they had the tents, now they've got individual pods. And you kind of crawl in there. It's quite comfortable. It's got an aircon radio, TV. Uh, it's for you to rest. It's got a safe.
1: You can keep your valuables there. So it looks like the Hajj is gearing up
0: into uh, the new technology space. Those are some of the observations from around the world,
1: Shafat. Absolutely. I saw that pod and I thought, hey, forget the iPod. Yeah, the guys are going to have it, uh, you know, luxury. And uh, then you're sitting in that pod and uh, yeah, they can 24-7, they got you under surveillance and everything uh, is all will be AI, artificial intelligence, and you will be dictated to. There are certain protocols uh, that uh, they are going to uh, implement in the Holy Lands, which is so unsunnah like your comments, uh, Ashraf.
0: Yeah, the pod was quite interesting. For one, it looked like a little grave and uh, quite claustrophobic. And number two, I don't think uh, older people would be able to get in and out easily because you've got to crawl in that space. And third, I mean, they, they you know, increasing all the comforts and giving you radio and uh, TV. Now, I ask you, in Muzdalifah, I mean, who wants to watch radio and TV? you there for a spiritual journey. You know, you're trying to get uh, your mind right for the next day and the coming days. Uh, you want to surround yourself with, with kind of doing prayer and not being entertained. So, yeah, I think the more technologically advanced they're making uh, things, I kind of now see that the more we move away from spiritual aims and benefits of Hajj, so I I hope that people use it for the right reason, you know. Um, Like, use the time to educate yourself or whatever while you're sitting in your pod waiting for the next day. I mean, I see the need for it on one level because of the amount of people there are in the limited space. Uh, Also, the dangers of fires, that kind of spread in the past, and I think they're kind of taking away the ability for you to now cook your own food and carry your own gas tanks because there's no space for that. You see, so I, I, I see the need for that. Uh, but if there is a tragedy of another kind, not necessarily fire, if there's flooding, I, I hope those things are all can withstand floods and and other disasters like. There was now an earthquake in uh, Afghanistan, quite a devastating 6.1 on the Richter scale. What would happen if something like that happens, you know? At least in the tent, uh, with with minimal uh, cover and possessions, you'd be able to get around quicker. Let's hope nothing like that happens. Uh, But these are questions that arise from
1: use of this kind of Technology and housing, you know, Ashraf. You make me think here, and we are at the mercy of algorithms. And if you look at our uh, broadcast, we're doing if uh, the internet is not working or the Wi Fi doesn't work, we are at the mercy of algorithms, we're at the mercy of our technology, we are at the mercy of electricity and so forth. But I'm thinking now, Hajj has become a lottery, they got a special company from India uh, that will decide. Who's uh, you know the people will be throwing in the the the, the lots and they'll be like you know how the lotto balls are drawn. That's how people will be drawn for Hajj. I mean, what's going on? It's like uh, I just can't help uh, believing that uh, you know what we've been captured by something sinister. Ashraf.
0: The first I hear of it, I, I thought that this Indian company is nominated to do the visas. I didn't realize it's like a lotto. That you means uh, it's going to be like the American diversity lotto. The, you can get a green card if you are chosen. And in terms of the American Constitution, they're obliged to give 50,000 applicants applications out for free every year uh, to the world because it's the land of the free and the brave. So uh, are you saying that this is, is going to operate along the similar lines where if you have a quota of, let's say, two million who you now have to you you have to play the lottery to be picked.
1: Yeah, you have to uh, yeah uh, book in, and uh, this is how how they will uh, they will uh, choose you. I mean, you're you I think you'll go in as a number, and uh, this is how it will be chosen by this uh, company, which will be running. Yeah. I, I, I presume uh, the system that will be uh, doing the, uh, the 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 choosing of a different who from around the world, and uh, which is. Uh, Rather startling to me, uh, Ashraf.
0: And does a does Ujjaj have to pay for these services?
1: Uh, no, he will be uh, yeah, he'll be booking his ticket and so forth, and uh, yeah, and uh, when he's lucky, uh, yeah, when he's lucky, say yeah, your ticket, uh, you've been chosen, uh, you can come for hajj now. That's uh, because no, uh, but you, does he
0: have to pay this company that, for for its services?
1: Now I don't know how the uh, Saudis are working it out, but that's how it's going to work out and. Uh, uh, this is how Hajj is going to be. And the whole thing, there'll be, uh, I don't think there'll be operators and all, all they're going to sideline everyone That will be run directly by the Saudis themselves. So you'll be applying directly, you know, with all the internet facilities and all these websites and all. Yeah. It'll be directly with the Saudi uh, government, I believe.
0: So that discriminates against the people in the deep heart of the desert that don't have internet access, that don't necessarily have the wherewithal to file and scan applications and all of that. So they will have to transport themselves to the big centers to access this kind of service. You see, um, yeah, it's as you said earlier on, it's a topsy-turvy world, Shafat. Uh, We seem to have very little control, and I'm sure that the rationale for that is going to be that every country has got who judges have complained against the participation of agents uh, and, and you know their difficulties that they have because the Saudi authorities recently made agents pay a hefty deposit and they had to be registered directly with the Saudis and the event of a default or a complaint that deposit was set off against uh, compensation so I think now it'll be interesting to see who you're going to blame and where
1: would your recourse lie? So you make a lot of sense. Uh, they had to pay a heavy deposit. It was just not, uh, you know, chosen as a random or they made themselves available. And, uh, you know, many of these uh, operators uh, that used to do Hajj trips are gone out of business now, Ashraf. And it seems like there's like, you know, hardly anyone that will want to do it. And uh, I spoke to a very senior travel agents uh, agent uh, recently and he told me, you know, they'll have to make plan B. They can forget... Uh, uh, you know, the Hajj tours and so forth, Ashraf? Uh,
0: yeah, look, these are some of the natural consequences of how things change, uh, Shabbat. Uh, nothing is forever, you know. The The telephone line of yesterday, uh, I remember when we were growing up, and there was this uh, grey telephone with a purple handle and then there was old uh, the coin-operated uh, public phones all that is gone, you know, and so, so people that, you have to change with the times. Um, now the time of the electric car is here, so the guy doing petrol and diesel engines will also have to find another way of earning a living. You have to become an EV uh, specialist.
1: You have to become an EV specialist, even uh, these uh, telephone technicians, you know, as they're upgrading to broadband and uh, so forth. Uh, You know, those that were used to work with the copper lines and all that, if they don't upgrade, uh, then they'll be out of uh, business. But Alhamdulillah, something that we don't have to upgrade is the Noble Qur'an. It, you know, it has stayed uh, there from the time of Nabi Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And it's we that have to make the first step and upgrade ourselves to be in the level of reading that Qur'an and being in the house of Islam. Perhaps, uh, you know, uh, I love your spiritual dimension. Talk to us about that. Keeping yourself connected with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala via the noble Quran, Ashraf.
0: So, uh, Shafat, uh, you know, that's an interesting thing that you raised because I've, I've often thought about, in a way, I must tell you, when I read the Quran on my phone or on a computer, it's different than when I take, I take it in my hand as a hizb, as a book. Because the description of the book, of Allah is al kitab. Now, kitab is a book. You know, it it it, uh, it presupposes holding the object in your hand, uh, being uh, it being very revered, uh, being in a pure state, and and uh, you know, in the old days, I don't know if they still do it. They kiss it before they take it, and they kiss it before they put it back. Uh, So there's a big difference reading this great, um, well, this is the only divine text that's left. For me personally, it's a big difference reading it in a book, Zalik al-Kitab. This is the book. In it is guidance for those that want. And reading it as a, you know, on a computer or on the phone. I find I'm not easy uh, to read it because I think some of the respect shown towards the book itself doesn't exist when you're holding it in your hand as a, as a in an electronic format because even kissing it, can you imagine you kiss the book and then now you're kissing your phone. It doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying, Shabbat?
1: Absolutely. The feeling
0: is not the same. Yeah. Secondly, the phone... Uh, or the computer, or the Kindle, or whatever, it receives multiple streams of different kind of information and images. Now, can you imagine that in coexisting in your phone? Again, what I'm saying, the the Quran doesn't appear to be uh, to be able to. Uh, to be read on, on anything but in a book form. That's what I'm saying. The approach to cleanliness is is not the same. Now, we know that only the pure may approach the Quran. Now, let's say you're in the state of, you don't have wudu, for example, and somebody sends you an ayat and you openly start reading. You're now reading that without wudu. You see, I'm saying that there are limitations to what you can do with this Quran outside the pure book form. Now, of course, it wasn't always revealed in the state as a book. It was revealed, and then it was recorded on sheepskin, on bone, on tablets. But then it was formalized, because we you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, this is a book revealed in the more il-mahfuz before time. And then it was revealed over a number of years to the Prophet. So it was a book; it was a tablet preserved before time. So my personal uh, preference and bias is towards uh, the Quran in a physical form, recorded on pages, uh, and and uh, you know the uh, kitab that you hold in your hand and you revere. I don't know if you recall. Um, you know, in the old days when there was a lot of Quran reading on the Juma or a Thursday night in the mosque, the man would not even face his back towards the Quran. So people used to sit back to back, you know, just out of reverence for the book. Um, I think a lot of that has now disappeared. Again, I'm suggesting that because there is an electronic version in our hands, but that's just a personal preference I don't expect anyone to, you know, to
1: share that. You know, I really appreciate you for that. And as you said, we're being desensitized. And it's just looking at the apps, looking at the phone, and looking at a bombardment of information. And, uh, you know, we look at the different types of stuff. See it, and we get a lo- lot of fake, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, people coming through and, uh, uh, you know, acting or imposters that act as uh, scholars of Islam. But, uh, you know, the sad part is, Ashraf, you and I grew up with that a beautiful adab of uh, respecting the Qur'an, not even showing our back to the Qur'an. Or if someone in the mosque was sitting, you know, uh, on, uh, on his patla, I mean, or sitting on his haunches and reading the Qur'an on a patla, you know what I'm talking about, like a bench. And we never would walk in front of him because of the reverence of the, that we had for the noble Qur'an. And it seems as if uh, yeah, the youngsters of today uh, are been uh, fast-tracked and uh, you know, fast-forwarded uh, to technology, And, uh, you know, uh, the respect is uh, slowly but edging away, not only for the Qur'an, but maybe for, you know, the religion itself, Uh, Ashraf. Your thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, I think it's not just the youngsters. Um, If you take... uh, Just take talking in the mosque, Shafat. It's not the youngsters alone making noise and talking. People don't understand the, the... the precincts of the, of the masjid and the rules of the masjid, and these are adults. Um, you know, it's it's now become also a place of, okay, socializing outside, and again, um, you know, we could be we could be misbehaving as adults. So, yeah, it is no doubt that as time goes on, uh, a lot of our, you know, behavior. Uh, or correct behavior has been eroded and is slowly getting eroded, Um, it is a matter of concern. Uh, That kind of thing has to be arrested, and, uh, you know, it it requires serious torture.
1: Absolutely, Ashraf, as we move on, and Jazakallah Khair for sharing those thoughts with me. I really appreciate it. And I can't let you go without uh, you know sharing some Islamic thoughts with us, you know, and you uh, do well all the time. Now, Ashraf, uh, when uh, we look at our, some of the questions that have uh, came, um, come through, and Harun said, uh, "Brother Shafata, I really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy senior attorney Ashraf Isop. He is one of our best in Kauteng. I agree with you, brother, and khair uh, for that. He said, please forward my question to him. When rogue cops are involved in uh, kidnapping." Can the state uh, be sued uh, by the victim? Uh, that's a, quite an interesting question, uh, Ashraf. Definitely, Shabat. So
0: let's look at how the Constitution frames this, and what the Constitutional Court had to say about this. So the, the leading case in this regard was Kamishali. Now Kamishali was uh, basically a victim of crime. And um, when she uh, uh, told the prosecutor, look, uh, this guy is very dangerous, don't give him bail. And the, uh, the suspect's mother also told the police slits, and this guy is you know, he's very dangerous, don't give him bail. Those two aspects were kept away from the magistrate. Lo and behold, the suspect was given bail. While out on bail, he then uh, attacked Kami basically slit her throat, did all bad things to her and left her to die. She survived and she sued the minister for negligence. The negligence being that this was not an act perpetrated by a policeman but it was an act perpetrated because of the policeman, because of the justice system not giving relevant information to the magistrate. And then she proved basically a causal connection between the damages or harm she suffered as well as the actions of the police. It's In law, it's called the Aquilian Action or Delict. And there's certain things you have to prove in order for you to succeed. But one of the most difficult things to prove is unlawfulness. Now that brings us to the question of whether a kidnapper, uh, sorry, a kidnap victim, would be able to sue the police if one of its members participates in kidnapping. Now, one has to ask this question, Shavat: Did the police? So, in order to hold the minister liable, there has to be. A, you know, he, this is the, he's, uh, the, the policeman is a servant of the minister or an employee. So you have to prove that. But you also have to prove that the servant was acting in the course and scope of his employment. So this is a slightly different uh, scenario of kidnapping where the cops kidnap you, um, not for the sake of ransom, but for the sake of getting a maybe a confession from you, you know, um, you know what I'm saying. They take you into custody by kidnapping you, by people not knowing where you are, etc. But for the sole purposes of uh, beating you to get information out of you, so they, in that case, they are acting in the course and scope of their employment. What they did is participated in illegal activity. Uh, And even if you were assaulted or tortured or whatever, you could have a claim against the minister because they are his employees acting in the course and scope of their employment in order to further what? Is to further the investigation or get a confession. So there's a clear purpose. I doubt very much you'll be able to succeed in suing the minister for the bad behavior of his police officer, who cannot be said to be acting in the course and scope of his employment, when he kidnaps you, he kidnaps you for his own purposeful uh, or criminal gain. So I doubt that the, 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 the um, recourse in respect of master and servant would lie against the minister because the law the law would say that the minister never ever uh, conceded that a policeman can commit a crime in his name if the policeman commits a crime in his own name the minister can't be held liable so the whole question turns on whether he was acting in the course and scope of his employment um if, if I'm to understand the question correctly, if I'm a kidnapped victim and one of the kidnappers or all of the kidnappers were policemen, I will not be able to sue the minister because this was not in the course and scope or the job description of the
1: police. I hope that answer is clear, Shiva. So we talk about Cyril Ramaphosa and about the dollar gate and uh, you know the uh, what farm gate and so forth. Uh, this Carnie House said, you know what? It's high time that we brought about a citizens' arrest and get a Cyril Ramaphosa arrested. Uh, can that be done, or is, is that uh, wishful thinking?
0: You no, know, citizens' arrest is always available uh, for for any number of reasons. But now, here we have to, you know, not look the gift. We have to be very carefully examining the circumstances. Like, you know the saying, never look a gift horse in the mouth. Because the teeth of the animal, of the horse, will tell you what was wrong with it. Or how old it is. Or whatever the case is. So, in order to give uh, some kind of credence to this discussion, one has to ask... Why would such a person be saying, I'm going to affect a civilian arrest? Um, Let's slightly digress and say, why did Mr. Fraser um, not report all of this at that time? Why wait two years uh, before you lay your criminal case against the president? Does this not reflect, perhaps, on one level, the the timing appears to be very opportunistic. Secondly, uh, why do you need a civilian arrest? Why are the police not capable of effecting an arrest? Thirdly, you you effecting a civilian arrest for what purposes? To secure the attendance of a suspect. Um, and take him to the police station. All that has happened. So what is the purpose of arrest? Because arrest is only one way of securing the attendance of a suspect uh, at a criminal case. You can invite him to be there. You can write a letter to him. The police can phone him. Uh, so, so arrest is not the only means of securing the uh, physical presence of a suspect. So you can just read there, uh, obviously we know when you say that it's uh, Mr. khan he has been a lot in the press uh, for various reasons, um, and so you'll have to make an assessment as to why he would be saying something like that. Uh, is it necessary? Is it warranted? Is it needed? Uh, I mean, where's the president going? And who, who's going to get close enough to effect a civilian arrest? You have to physically take custody of the person. Uh, and security around the president is not lax. He's got many, many bodyguards. Uh, people have tried the possibility of civilian arrest against international political figures like Tony Blair um, for his involvement in uh, the Afghani war. Uh, so again, trying to physically get close enough to effect it, you I'm sure you'll be blocked by many many security personnel because, like I say, it's a physical arrest. Um, so I hope that kind of answers
1: that question. No, uh, well said there, Ashraf. And already, uh, yeah, yeah, it is not so easy. And uh, you remember, this is the president of the, the country, and also uh, Chief Justice Zondo making a recommendation that I perhaps. Uh, the president of the country should be uh, elected directly. Your thoughts?
0: So there's the whole electoral reform. It was a bill, it's now an act. Now, how uh, presidents are elected is obviously based on the, the party's preferred candidate. Now the party will go through a process of finding the president and vice president of its choice for as its political nominee, and then obviously that person becomes president. In this case, we've had a long history of from President Mandela downwards uh, to to President um, Ramaphosa. But in between, we know what happened. When the party's candidate uh, falls foul of its internal workings, then he's recalled. So he's recalled not just as the president, but he's recalled as the party's nominee for that position. We saw that happen uh, at, uh, uh, when uh, President Becky was recalled. And then subsequently, President uh, Zuma was not really recalled, but he was not then elected as the party's preferred candidate. So that is how it has been run. Then there was a amendment to the Electoral Act. I, I don't know how far it is actually gone, if the Home Affairs has finished it. But it basically says that you can stand directly as an independent for president. Now, obviously, you must be able to get the the requisite number of votes uh, in parliament to, to control the majority party. And the majority party, as I say, has the necessary wherewithal to elect its candidate or nominate its candidate for presidency. That's in South Africa. As we know, in other parts of the world, it's different. Uh, In the U.S., you can only nominate from one of two parties, Republican or uh, the Democratic Party. Independents don't stand a chance. They fall by the side. You also have to have very deep pockets for the campaigns and the necessary uh, television adverts. I I mean, I, I think you really have to be, as in the States, a millionaire or a billionaire in your own right uh, before you can actually stand as a candidate. Here in South Africa, as we've explained, it's party politics driven with its uh, particular candidate and anything can happen to the candidate. But now the floor is open for, let's say, somebody saying, I'm representing the aliens uh, from the UFOs and I'm going to stand for that. And he might get enough people in his constituencies and say, no, we're going to vote for you, and we're going to encourage other, other people to vote for you. The man with the highest vote wins, or the party with the highest vote wins. It'll be interesting to see how many independents actually make it there,
1: no, Absolutely. And, uh, you know, something uh, uh, that the country has spoken is, uh, when you looked at uh, Dr. Imtia Suleiman as a humanitarian and a gift of the givers, and they had a poll. If he, uh, there was an election for a president uh, like tomorrow, he'll walk it hands down, Ashraf.
0: Interesting to see if that's going to turn into reality because the, the fact of the matter uh, is that the voting population is not in the urban areas in South Africa. You can mm. put every person in the urban areas together you'll come to about 3 million. If 3 million vote for one person, it is not sufficient to outweigh the 17 million from the rural areas, and this is where the power of the voter lies. This is how democracy works. So maybe you're popular in the urban areas, you know, you can do anything, but no one sitting in the middle of some uh, rural farm knows about you. All they know is the ANC brought liberation and uh, they are receiving their welfare grants every month and when it comes to time to vote again, their loyalties don't shift. I think that kind of uh, voter has got very little concern about inflation and the price of petrol and you know who stole what and uh, who's charged with what corruption. They live in a They live in a a very, you know, different world, Shafat. In other words, the middle class concerns, I don't think will translate necessarily into concerns for the people who have the power of numbers in the rural areas.
1: I tell you, Ashraf, you know know boxing, eh? You gave me a TKO there. Brilliant. What an answer. (laughs) I mean, I'm on the floor. Let me get up, please, eh? Yeah, I made the count. I made the count. A brilliant answer indeed. Yeah, As you said, you know, who's reading the newspapers, who's doing everything. You look at the informal settlements. I mean, one uh, electoral officer voted 25 times and they caught her out. And, you know, all these things happening, there's so much of underhand tactics going on. Allahu Alam what's going on. But I'm looking at another question that had come in for you and it's from Faisal in King Williamstown. And he says, uh, as alaikum brothers. I want to know if a, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, uh, if a Cyril Ramaphosa controls and patrols the judiciary, he's a uh, chief justice, he's a Zondo, and he's got Zondo in the pocket. And uh, now he is uh, nominated uh, Judge uh, Mandisa as a deputy chief justice. I want to know from Ashraf Isop if uh, Cyril Ramaphosa has the ju- judiciary in his pocket, what hope is there for a fair, uh, fair uh, trial for our? People in South Africa and fairness of justice for all of us. It seems he is serving the, the vested interest of the capitalist. How do you respond to Faisal in uh, Queen William, Williamstown, uh, uh, Ashraf?
0: See Jamal, I disagree with uh, Faisal, respectfully, from King Williamstown. I don't think uh, Chief Justice. Uh, Uh, Zondo is in the pocket of President Cyril Ramaphosa. Let's understand, there is a thing called separation of powers. You have the judiciary who's supposed to be independent from the legislative arm and the executive. The legislative arm sits in uh, Cape Town, uh, which is uh, the parliament, and then the executive, which is the president and the cabinet. So in, in, in the way South Africa's constitution reads at present is that the chief justice uh, nomination or the, the, the final selection of, of justices is done by the president. But the process is guided by the Judicial Services Commission. As you see, the Judicial Services Commission is made up of a number of parliamentarians, members of the public, and certain select groups. It is their job to interview and grill the justices, those that are coming into the profession and those that are advancing in the profession, like from the High Court to the SCA Supreme Court to uh, to the Constitutional Court. So in the last round, the uh, suddenly... Uh, a great theme emerged from the, you know, the nomination of the new chief justice, and that was this whole business of having the first female chief justice. You know, when we speak of equity, we say that there has to be fair representation in terms of gender, in terms of race, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. South Africa has never had a chief justice who was a female. So here comes the opportunity and uh, the, and the president of the Supreme Court of Appeals, uh, uh, Maya, and Lisa Maya, was uh, nominated to, to be Chief Justice. However, President Ramaphosa having then seen the recommendations by the, from the Judicial Services Commission and decides whether he is going to accept one of those candidates now recently he's also uh, he's also nominated, he also appointed uh, Owen Rogers who is a top trademarks lawyer or intellectual property lawyer to the Constitutional court because you know it had to have balance in terms of color uh, gender etc but also in terms of expertise uh, you need you need uh, you know a judge is not uh, uh, you know, trained in every aspect of the law. Some of these things are very complex, this business of intellectual property. So, Owen Rogers is a good example of a highly experienced individual who now becomes uh, a justice uh, in the Constitutional Court. Another example is uh, Judge Jody Kolopin from uh, Lodium. Uh, he was a human rights, he was head of the Human Rights Foundation for many years, became a Junior judge then moved through the ranks and then ultimately got appointed to the constitutional court. That brings, um, let's say, the expertise regarding human rights to the, to the court so that it can pronounce correctly regarding these issues. Come back to Justice Meyer. At the end of the day, it might have been premature to suggest that she can become the direct Chief Justice, because the normal route to becoming Chief Justice is that you're a deputy before you become the chief. Um, That we saw was interrupted when Motzeneke was Deputy Chief Justice, but all of a sudden they put Mokhoeng Mokhoeng as Chief Justice. Um, That was, you know, that was basically an example of how that was not followed in that case. So, I would suggest that there's a big difference between a, a, a justice in the Supreme Court of Appeal and one in the Constitutional Court, because you don't have direct access to the Constitutional Court, uh, you know, it's, unless it's a constitutional matter. So it's really, uh, you know, all of these uh, cases are pitched against the rights in the Constitution and. Upholding of the Constitution. And so you need a different kind of judge there. But certainly what happens is once you go through the ranks, then you could be, you know, become the ultimate choice. Now, Chief Justice Zondo doesn't have long to go. So I think in view of the fact that they're now thinking about advancing the interests of gender parity on the Constitutional Court, that Chief Justice Maya is one of the senior judges and that ultimately will mean that she'll become the natural choice uh, for chief justice having served as deputy chief justice Ashraf, i don't Ashraf. think that they in the pockets and all of that that Gee. i don't buy that
1: no, uh, well said there and uh, you know there's so many questions there you look on the screen there there's too many i'm just going to jump around uh, let's let's go to that one there Ashraf, by adil adil says uh rahmatullahi warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. I really enjoy uh, uh, Ashraf Isuf on the show. Keep it up, uh, brother Shafat and team. He says recently government allowed or allocated 22 million for the South African Special Risk Insurance Association, but many that were looted a year ago still have not been paid. What must victims do? I don't know. They didn't resolve that issue yet, Ashraf.
0: Yeah, I think what the caller is talking about is the uh, victim relief from the June-July riots in uh, Natal, right? I know there was a, a fund especially allocated for that. Is that what he's talking about?
1: I think so, yeah. It, 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 what Sastria. They call it Sastria or something.
0: Oh, no, yeah. no. Sastria, yeah. So Sastria is basically like a government insurance, the equivalent of Sanlam or, or something like that. That was specifically for uh, political and riot-related unrest and damage to property. So the, the question then is, did SASRIA pay or didn't pay? The feeling I get from that question is that people were not paid out of the SASRIA relief funds. Uh, and then they, they want to know, what can you do about it? Well, like any insurance contract, you know, it's a contract between the client who pays the, the premium and the ultimate cover that you get. Now, remember, not everyone got Sastria. It was only available for those people that took Sastria cover. And uh, if you were not paid, well, there's a number of steps you can take. You know, you can refer it to the ombuds for shorter, for short-term insurance. And if you're not happy, you can bring an application in the high court for a order to be paid. Uh like you would do it any insurance contract, uh, but I think if we we think that Sasria is just for the taking, like it's some kind of pot of money that you, you anyone and everyone can dip into that that'll that'll be the wrong impression. It is a part of an insurance contract. Now let's give you another slightly uh, diverse uh, example the recent floods and landslides in KZN, if you didn't take out subsistence um, insurance and your land collapsed as a result of all of these floods, etc., caused by uh, subsistence in the land, you're not going to get paid, although you had insurance for everything else. The cause of the damage is subsistence. Uh, yes, there might have been floods, etc. The end result is the land became loose and weak. If you didn't have a specific clause, you didn't take out subsistence, you're not going to get paid. It's as simple as that. It's a strict rule of interpretation of contracts. In other words, you get what you pay for.
1: Well, Ashraf, yeah, imagine eh, losing it that way and uh, yeah, the technicalities, the smart, fine print, all that comes into being and then you lost it all. Um, brother Bashir says, Assalamualaikum. Alaikum, I'm a Somalian national working here in South Africa as a truck driver. Recently, I was involved in an accident where I had uh, severe injuries. The medical examinations prove that my injuries make it impossible for me to drive heavy-duty trucks again. My company refuses to uh, release papers which will allow me to claim uh, compensation for my disabilities. What shall I do, brothers? I am desperate. Ashraf, can you help him?
0: Well, there's two things there. Is um, COIDA, right? Uh, occupational Health and Safety. Every month, you get paid, you, your employer pays for your COIDA. And now, if you are uh, hurt in the performance of your job, that is COIDA related. However, if it is a vehicle accident, then your relief is through the RAF, Road Accident Fund. Now the Road Accident Fund, as we all know, is a fund that is funded through our petrol levies to the tune of about uh, 60 or 80 billion a year. So if it is accident related, You're not claiming COIDA. Then you have to put in a claim for your injuries. If you're permanently handicapped, or your your injuries are permanent, then you have to follow the RAF, Road Accident Funds Protocol. And there you're gonna have to then get medical reports to show that your injuries are permanent and you're unable to carry out your work. So then, the RAF will make an assessment of, based on your current earnings, based on the nature of your, in, your, your injuries, based on the number of years you would have ordinarily worked, they will pay you for past loss of earnings, future loss of earnings, past medical expenses, future loss of expenses, and a thing called general damages. Now, I'm, I'm qualifying my answer because I'm not an expert in RAF, but generally, yeah, perhaps the, the brother is going up the r- wrong route. Instead of demanding uh, occupational health and safety payment, um, the the uh, injuries were caused due to a motor vehicle collision, and therefore the RAF would be the proper channel to follow, road accident one.
1: Even if it means uh, you know they are foreign nationals, uh, they still go through the uh, the same uh, uh, protocols. Uh, Ashraf. Of yeah, National. because
0: you. Yeah, it's not dependent on on your status. Uh, you could be you could be an asylum a asylum seeker, or you could be a permanent residence or temporary residence. The act doesn't discriminate on that basis. It says uh, the criteria is. If you're involved in a road accident and it's got qualifying criteria, like certain things uh, are not considered vehicles. And if that, that thing was on the road. So like a vehicle is typically described as, you know, motor driven or petrol driven or, you know, now they have to make provision for electrically driven, uh, having four wheels or whatever, but it's very technical. So basically you can't, um, you, let, let's say you were involved in two bicycles that collided with each other, that wouldn't qualify as a road accident fund, because it's not a vehicle. You see what I'm saying? It might have happened on the road, but it's not, a, it's not a vehicle collision in that sense, because a bicycle is not a vehicle, but a guy riding a bike who's ridden over by a driver, that is a road collision, because one of the vehicles was a vehicle by definition.
1: Well, that makes a lot of sense, Ashraf. And, uh, you know, when you and I talk, the butter car flows. I know this is, uh, the time is about uh, catching up on us. And perhaps uh, this evening, your parting words, Ashraf?
0: You know, as always, Shavad, you raised something very important about the need and necessity to constantly be reading from the Quran. Um, I think that is a very important message. We urge people to do so.
1: Make uh, lots of dua for the Ummah, for the country,
0: for the challenges that we face. You know, the Eastern Cape is in a severe drought. And, you know, you you can't survive without water.
1: Yeah, we seem to have lost Ashraf there, but alhamdulillah, yes, uh, as you're saying, uh, the drought about the Eastern Cape and, uh, you know, we can't survive without water. And there, once again, in the Eastern Cape, uh, we have uh, the gift of the givers uh, doing the best. And I believe uh, they have struck two boreholes uh, st- uh, thus far, and uh, both for hospitals and uh, a few other facilities uh, that serve the community and uh, full marks to them. So alhamdulillah, even all uh, to all of you. Uh, I'd like to uh, thank you for sending in uh, your question. And as I said at the uh, beginning of your show, uh, that you are the ones that add value to this program. And a big jazakallah khair to you, you, and you. And inshallah, uh, stay uh, locked on. We're going to go for the Isha Azan. And after that, uh, we'll join you with Wasail Al Alam Sadiqa, truthful news with the Sheikh Ramadan Ahmed, uh, asking uh, the question Is Africa? an African continent or is it still an African continent yes what do you think let's go for the Isha Azan